a sweet day. It's a bittersweet day. It's a bittersweet day. We're in our Bibles in Titus. Take your Bible if you have it. Turn to the book of Titus or just listen real carefully. I'm going to read. We're preaching through the book of Titus in a series we're calling the Little Red Book of Church. It's like Harvey Pinnock's Little Red Book of Golf, only this is the, 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 the book that God gave us how church is supposed to work. And it's a beautiful thing when church is working, isn't it? Like here and now, that God is at work among us, drawing people to himself, doing good deeds, loving people who, who need love. We've, uh, we're so grateful for the ministry of the Center for Women. And sister, thank you for your, for your message that the Lord put on your heart, and especially how that was just custom made for us right here at Bethel. And we're so grateful for that ministry, and we so keep that in prayer. And uh, grateful for you reporting on that. And grateful to be able to see God, you know, changing lives and helping people when they face the darkest and most difficult times that we have hope in the Lord. And you see, that's why we're studying the book of Titus, because Titus is about how to do church, and church is about that. And when you, when you, you, know, when you see a culture that's kind of caving in, or when your life is kind of caving in, and if you have really good sense, and I don't need to be negative, but if you have really good sense, then you kind of know that the culture around us is, is in many ways, spiritually and morally, it's caving in. And if your life is ever, you know, caving in, you, you want to get a hold of a Bible and do what God says. Years ago, it was, uh, I think it was the 2nd of January in the year 2006. We were in Flint, we were running the character in, and the students were gone, and so our family was manning the, and womaning the, the front desk. I was staying up all night sitting at the front desk. And uh, there at the front desk in the middle of the night, the television, I was watching the television when a news report came that in a little town in West Virginia, there had been a mine that caved in. 13 miners were trapped below the ground, and all night there was a vigil, and the vigil was being held at the local little Baptist church, the Sago Baptist Church. And the pastor was presiding, and all the people from all around the world were there. And uh, eventually, all of those miners died but one. But as I set up that night, and I was an interim pastor at the Byron Baptist Church at the time, and I was full-time there at the inn, in my heart, something was happening. As I watched that pastor at that, in that little Baptist church and presiding, you know, over that terrible disaster and helping people and ministering to the people and praying with the people. God was doing something in my heart and he was telling me, You're, I'm not done using you as a pastor. In the most powerful way, I sensed that God was going to have me be a pastor again. You see, um, here's God's plan. God's plan is that every town and every city and every town and every village and every neighborhood would have an assembly of believing people. God's plan is the church, that every city and every town and every village and every neighborhood would be, have an assembly of God's people like this one. And then God's plan is very simple for how that works. To establish that assembly, he said first, challenge men to follow the Lord. Now, you're going to see that here. And that's why I'm calling this message, first the men, first the men. Now, ladies, stay with us, please. We love you. And, and, and we are going to talk about you in a couple of weeks in, I think, the most endearing and encouraging and hopeful way. But, but the men, we probably need a little head start, right? So first the men. 
And this is the way the Holy Spirit has arranged the Bible. And our text for the message today is in, of course, the book of Titus, and it is in verses 5 through 9. So let me read that to you right now. This is why I left you in Crete. Paul is writing to Titus, his helper there in, on the Isle of Crete in the Mediterranean. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer is God's steward, must be an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must firm, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. That's the section that we'll talk about today. Now, Pastor Leo is here. Leo is going to take this, the next section. So in, in, a, in an interesting twist of providence, uh, you have two of your pastors that are going to share with you about, about pastors and about elders over the next two weeks. And this will be enriching. And here's why. I think, first of all, you know, if you're a man, this is something to encourage us as a kind of a model that the Spirit would help us to be able. Whenever the Lord commands something, it implies that he will empower us to do that. That should be really encouraging to us that are men. That list that I read, it's kind of, it's kind of heavy. If you're like I am, you think, I never read that list without thinking, whoa, that's heavy. Maybe you feel that way too. We all have our share of mistakes, failures, sins, and shameful things in our life. There are no exceptions. And yet there is this list that God says, this is what you should aspire to. I will help you to become this kind of man. And if you're not a man here, this would be the kind of person that you should be praying for and encouraging, right? And this is this, uh, this uh, and so what we wanna do here is what we would normally not do. And this is what we're gonna do today is what I call just a little running commentary because there are almost 20 qualities here of men. We're going to go through these things in this little message that we're calling, you know, First the Men. There was a fella in Dallas. He, he was a seminary professor in Dallas and he was teaching about what the church should be like. And he did this for years until finally he decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the stuff that I've been teaching and I'm going to go practice it. And he, so he decided that he would start a church. Then, and, and there were all kinds of ideas about how to start churches, all kinds of prevailing ideas about, you know, how, how to grow a big church or how to grow a successful church. But this professor decided that he would just take the book of Titus and the book of First, Second Timothy, the, what they're called the pastoral letters, the pastoral epistles, letters written to pastors, and, and he, would, he would model the church on that. And this man's name was Gene Getz, and what he did first was he met with the men. And he said, let's all get together and let's look at these lists, the one in First Timothy that's similar to this, a parallel list, and the one in Titus that I just read to you. And he said, let's just go a week at a time and let's study these things. And the first week, he took the first quality and he did a little Bible study on that at breakfast with the men. And the next week, another one of the men took another one of the qualities and, and then they passed those around until they, that is how the church started. And the Fellowship Bible Church in Dallas, Texas started that way. And then it became a movement and there are hundreds of churches like that all over the country today because there was a man who just took his Bible in hand and said, let's just do what this says. First, the men. Someone said it this way. An old Methodist writer named E.M. Bounds said, men are God's method. Ladies, don't misunderstand of the importance of women. We're going to get to that. But first, the men. Men are God's method. Here's the way he put it in a book on prayer. We're constantly on a stretch. 
if not on a strain, to devise new methods and new plans and new organizations to advance the church and secure the enlargement and the efficiency of the gospel. But Bounds said, but men are God's method. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men who are mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He doesn't come upon machinery, but upon men. He doesn't anoint plans, but he anoints men. Men are God's method. The first thing we do is we seek out godly men, or we strive with the help of the Holy Spirit to become godly men. I was privileged in Ohio to start a church years ago, and we got the men together. This is what we did. We decided that we would meet, I was younger then, that we would meet like at five o'clock in the morning. I don't do this anymore. That was just in my foolhardy youth. And I said to all the men, let's meet at five o'clock in the morning. Let's bring a legal pad on our Bibles. Let's build this church on Bible study and prayer. And we did. We all met in my study at five o'clock in the morning on a Thursday morning. A whole bunch of the guys there that we had gotten together to start this church. And I said, let's go through the scriptures and let's just see how the church is supposed to work. And especially, we were asking the question, how is the church supposed to be governed? And we, we said, well, you know, is it supposed to be this style of government or that style of government? And often denominations are named after the style of church government. And we said, let's just push that all aside and let's just take out our Bibles and see what God says. And this is the conclusion that we came to unanimously and we shared in the teaching of it to the congregation. And that is that the first thing we need to do is identify godly men. The Bible calls them sometimes elders, sometimes pastors, sometimes overseers or bishops. It's all the same in the Bible. So in the Bible, for instance, we won't do it today, but if you go to Acts 20, you'll see that all those three things are listed and they're all talking about the same office. If you go to 1 Peter in chapter 5, you see that all three of those things are listed and they're talking about the same office. If you look at the text even today, it says appoint elders and then later on it says in verse, verse 5 and later on in verse 7 it says for an overseer, that's the bishop word, must be, etc. In other words, an elder is a pastor, is a bishop. Now there are pastor teachers I get to do that. A pastor teacher, you know, 1 Timothy chapter 5 says that all the elders should be given honor, but there should be a special honor to those who labor in the word and doctrine, which is one of the reasons why I'm grateful to get a paycheck. Not all elders get a paycheck. Um, and that's what the New Testament says. They may or they may not. And, and, and yet the, the bishop, the pastor, the elder, in the, if you just take the New Testament and you don't, you don't go outside the New Testament into church traditions or histories and just, you, you just look at what the New Testament says, it's a very simple thing. Find men who have these qualities. And so we, that's how we started the church. The elders were the constitution. The elders were the, the really the, the, the leading, the leaders of the church. And in our church, it's, it's godly elders. We'll talk about that in a minute, but you see in the scriptures, they're called overseers or bishops. Or they're, they're called elders. They're called shepherds or pastors. And in this text, they're called stewards of God's flock, as if there's a great rich treasury that they're responsible for. And so as we make our way through this, I'm, I'll show you four major things, but another way to look at it is, there, is we're just gonna kind of go through this bullet list of 20 qualities. And, and when you listen to it, I, I, hope you aren't, I hope you're humbled, but you're not overwhelmed. So just before we go any farther, uh, just pause in your own heart. And, and, and God didn't write the Bible to crush men and women and discourage us. He gave us the Bible to inspire us, to convict us, yes, to inspire us, to show us what he wants to do in us. 
And so uh, when we see this, we should always recognize God is saying, this is the kind of man, if you're a man, that you can be if you depend on my spirit who is holy. This is the kind of man that you can be. Ladies, this is what you want your son, this is what you want to pray toward for your sons. This is what you want to help your husband to become. This is what you want to honor and appreciate in a man and any men that make any efforts toward that. And, and I'll just say this before we go any farther. And wherever you see your own self in failure in any of these things, don't deny it, but admit it and humble yourself before God and God will help you. That's the, begin- the way up is down, right, men? So let's look now at these things. He says uh, in verse five, I left you in Crete to, to bring order to the church put what remains in order, appoint elders in every town. You're going to see there are false teachers, and these elders are going to push against that, but, but first their own character. And then you have there in verse 6, it's, it's almost as if the vices that are absent. I was being, being considered for a job once. I didn't know I was being considered for a job. I stumbled into a place. It was that inn that I was talking about, and I, I kind of came in there one day uh, to bring my daughter, and the, the head of the ministry took me into his office, and the whole family was sitting around that day, and we had no idea what was happening. Uh, we were just there to bring our daughter, and the head of the ministry had us in this office, and then the whole family, you remember this day, were just sitting around in a big circle, and then he started asking me questions, and then one of the things he said was, if I were to invite you to come and, and, uh, and head up this ministry, would there be somebody else that could take your church? And I thought, oh, this doesn't sound good, because it was a huge job, and I knew I, I just couldn't do that. Uh, and, and one of the things I said to him that day as he talked with me, as I said to him, you haven't even seen my resume. And then never forget what he said. He gestured to my wife and my children, and he said, this is your resume. Now, that's a little bit what the scriptures are saying right here. It says, verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. This is a reference to a man's moral purity. Not how many times he's married, as much as it is a reference to his moral purity. He's a one-woman man. I, I met a flirtatious deacon one day. He was a serial flirt. It wasn't good. Everybody knew that. He was a deacon in the church. I went to him privately and I said to him, you have to stop that. And it didn't go well, as you can imagine. I said, you can't be a deacon in this church and be a flirtatious. He was only married to one woman, but he wasn't a one woman man. And he wasn't qualified for leadership. I told him, I said, you need to step off of the board. You need to take your place in the pew and you need to pray that God will give you a pure heart and an eye for one woman so that you uh, would be qualified to be a leader here. And I have never known a man, I've never, I've, there, there are men, I'm sure, I have never known a man that didn't have a battle to win in this area. And yet, the Bible says that these leaders are one woman men. And, and the Bible also says his children are believers or, or sometimes rendered faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination or sometimes rendered, you know, unruly. In other words, he, he's a man who has, uh, who's a one-woman man. He's morally sound, and he is able to order his house. If he can't order his house, then why would he think to go outside his house and start to give, you know, order to the church of God? Then there are vices that are absent or the things that disqualify him. And these are in verse 7, above reproach. He should be above reproach, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy. An overseer as God's steward. 
Yeah, back up uh, just a page probably in your Bible to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20. It says, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for an honorable use, some for a dishonorable use. Therefore, if, a, if one cleanses himself from that which is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for an honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This is what we should aspire to. God, I want to be used. God says, I want to use you too. I want you to be an honorable vessel. My, my son was driving one day and he had three girls in his car. He was taking them home uh, from a Christian ministry where they were working and he cut somebody off in traffic. He cut the wrong guy off in traffic. Um, if you're gonna cut somebody off, cut off some little girl in a VW. Don't cut off a guy with a big you know, uh, pickup truck with a Confederate flag in his back window and a gun. It's just a bad idea, right? He cut off the wrong guy. I don't think you should cut off girls. That was a joke. I was trying to be funny. He cut this guy off when the guy was chewing and spitting, you know? And so he, the guy came up next to him. The windows were open, and he, and, he, and he emptied the contents of his spittoon into the car, into the lap of one of the girls. He had a vessel for a dishonorable use, if you will. There are other vessels of dishonorable use that we're just not going to talk about in church. This is not what we want to be. Here's, what, here's a picture that Paul has given to the men to challenge them. And that is, it's possible for a man to be holy. It's possible for a man to be holy. And it's possible for a man who God has made holy by the work of his Holy Spirit to have an honorable use for God. This is what we want to pray towards for our men. This is what we want to aspire to ourselves for an honorable use. So he's above reproach. Will Houghton was a pastor, and one time there was a man in his town that said, you know, all pastors are fake, all pastors are charlatans, all of them. Somebody challenged him and said, I don't think that Will Houghton is a fake. I think he's the real deal. So this man hired a private detective. True story. He hired a private detective to follow this pastor around to confirm that he was a hypocrite. And the, the detective came back and said, the guy is the real deal. The man got an appointment with Will Houghton, and Will Houghton led him to Christ. Later, Will Houghton, by the way, at Moody Bible Institute, they have a hall called Houghton Hall, because he was later the president of Moody Bible Institute. And guess who sent one of his daughters to Moody Bible Institute? The man who hired a private detective to see if he was the genuine thing. He's to be above reproach, not arrogant. He's characterized by a humble dependence on God. You lead by following God humbly and submitting to God. If you have authority, it was delegated to you from God. He's not quick-tempered. In other words, he doesn't get angry to get done what he needs to get done. He realizes there are godly ways to get things done without forcing things. In about 1980, shortly after we got married, I realized I was going to have a problem with this, a very serious problem that would really disqualify me from the ministry. I remember in, uh, after an episode of sinful anger, my wife was gone. And I picked up the telephone and I called a husband's abuse line in Boston, I remember. I can remember sitting at my desk and going, God, if you don't help me here, I can't go on. I won't be a good husband. I won't be a good dad. And I can never be a pastor. God delivered me from that anger altogether. My oldest son was born in 1981. None of my children have ever seen that in me. God can deliver us from things uh, that we're really ashamed of. 
God isn't saying, I need men who've never made a mistake. God is saying, I need men who are humble, who humble themselves. Ask me to do in them what only I can do. Not violent men and not greedy for gain. In other words, they have possessions, but their possessions don't own them. You don't serve the Lord for money. These are vices that should be absent. That's verse 7. Then there are virtues that should be present in verse 8. Things that qualify a man, if you will, or things that show that he is qualified. Things that he should be. Hospitable, the lover of good, self-controlled, upright, or just, or righteous, and holy. Hospitable means that he loves people. Hospitable means that he leans into relationships with people. There are different personalities, and there are good pastors in all the personality types. They're, they're all different. Um, and so you don't want to look for a certain personality and say, this is the only legitimate pastoral personality. But there has to be a genuine welcoming of people, a genuine desire to, to be hospitable to people. And have you met men that are entertained by things that are evil? These are not the kind of men that can lead the church. The men that lead the church, the Bible says, are lovers of good things. The man that you want to be is a man that loves things that are good. The jokes that you tell ought to be about things that are good. The things that you spend your time on and your secret thought life should be things that are good. If those things, if that's not true about you, then you can ask God to cleanse you and give you a heart that loves things that are good and right and holy and just, pure. These are the things that... This is, a, this is how you can tell a man should be a leader is he loves things that are good. He's a lover of things that are good. He's hospitable. He's self-controlled. He's not given over to self-indulgence. In other words, he, he needs to recognize that self-indulgence, sinful self-indulgence unchecked and unconfessed will disqualify him from leading other people. And this is also true. The Bible says upright. This is the, the, the word there means just or righteous. And we know there is that, you know, positional righteousness. When we're in Christ, we have his righteousness given to us. But then we progress in, 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 in righteous behavior. That, that's the work of sanctification, the Holy Spirit working in us. We clean up our language. We clean up our thought life. We do what's right. We say what's true. We don't take things that aren't ours. Other women feel safe in our presence because we, we're growing in righteousness. These are the kind of men that should lead the church. Men who are growing in righteousness. And this should sober all of us, but also should encourage us that it makes it that it is possible. And then, of course, it's capped with this holy. A, guy, a, a man who's a leader is a man who knows how to deal with sin in his own life because he's going to be dealing with sin in his family and he's going to be dealing with sin in the church all the time. That's what you do. And so this is what we're looking for. A man who, who has used, he, who's, he has the weapons of spiritual warfare that he's good at using and he knows how to stand up against evil in his own heart first and then wherever else he sees it. Robert Murray Machane was a great Scottish pastor who wrote some beautiful things. He wrote this in a letter to a young man named Edwards who was being uh, ordained for the ministry on the eve of the occasion of his ordination. He said this, in great measure, Dan, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument will be its success. It's not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus Christ. And a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God. Machine also said often, he said, my church's greatest need is my own holiness. Can we broaden that to, you know, even to our elders and leaders, this church's greatest need is just that it would have men who are holy men, who love God, who confess their sin, 
That these vices are shrinking, these virtues are growing in their life. And then it also says discipline. They practice, you know, habits of the heart, discipline. And then there's a skill and a conviction in teaching the truth. And you see this now. We've gone from verse 8 to verse 9. Notice what it says there in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Now hear this. You may have a, a, a fellow that's a preacher or a teacher that you think is really, really a good preacher or teacher, and he may say lots of positive, happy things that make you feel good, but if he never rebukes error, he isn't obeying the Bible. Because, of, because it's, it's, here's the way I told a friend of mine who's being ordained, a young man, he's a pastor at Mayfair Bible Church now, but he's ordained in our church, and when I gave the charge to him, I said to him, Michael, never throw your weight around don't take your authority and abuse people. Never throw your weight around. But always let people feel your weight. In other words, a man of God teaches the word of God, and he's man enough to resist things that are going to destroy people. A man of God doesn't, isn't just a sentimental man who just says nice things all the time and never opposes anything because there's evil that should be opposed. A, a real man has to be a little bit dangerous sometimes. And a bad man is dangerous at the wrong times to the wrong people. But a good man is dangerous at the right times to the people that, that, that people need to be protected from and false teachers. And this is, uh, Pastor Leo gets this text next week. False teachers, the ones that are described in the text that's following here, they need to be resisted by real men in the church. So a church isn't really a church if it doesn't have godly men. And a church group, an eldership, if you will, a group of elders, isn't really a, a group of elders if all they do is just happy and positive and they, they never do the heavy lifting, the hard work of resisting things that are not true because our lives depend on the truth. And that's why it says that in verse 9. That's so important. And then there's a responsibility that we have. And, and, it will, and we'll get to that, you know, later. I... I uh, I just want to stop for a minute, and I want to close our service with a direct appeal to you. What, what you saw happen today it, it, with Charles' baptism is one of the sweetest things that I have ever occasioned in my life, that God, in a very sad time in our life, would bring us to a very happy place and a beautiful place, very much our dream, and yet woven into that, that God was at work in this dear man's life, and that he brought us along, you know, as a friend and a mentor, just to be with him and to befriend him, to, I wanted a friend, and he was willing to be my friend, but I was also able to encourage him in the Lord. And yet here he has now, on this very bitter time in his life, has, there's a great sweetness to it that he would know the Lord. But let me tell you something that you might not know about this story. So on that October 1st, on uh, October uh, 1st of 2017, when Lois and Hope and I drove onto that little property, and we talked to Charles, we started walking around that day and he was showing us the place. It was such a beautiful day. It was a golden day. We walked around the corner of the house. Charles, I don't know if you remember this, but we walked around the corner of the house there and I said, you know, I, I came to Jackson, the pastor of the Bethel Church. And when I said that, Chuck kind of went, huh, like that. We walked around to the other corner of the house, and when we got to that corner of the house, he said to me that he had had struggled, he had had pancreatic cancer before. And he said, I work with Dennis Conant, Dennis Conant, one of our elders. And he said, Dennis told me that he was praying for me. 
And then his voice caught and his eyes filled with tears. And I realized when he said that about Dennis, you know, you tell a lot of people you're praying for him, but a lot of people that doesn't mean too much to him. I could tell that Chuck had a tender heart and God used one of the elders of our church to show Christian love for him. Here's what I believe. One of these days, Charles is going to go be with the Lord. Dennis Conant gets a little assist on that. Ken gets a little assist, just a little one. The Lord did, but here's the thing I covet for all of us. We know that God is at work because we've seen him. But you really know when God is at work, when he uses you, when you get an assist, when you're a part of it. This is what I covet for you and, and for your kids. Church the way the Bible teaches it. We do it God's way. We get God's result. And then, and then it's something that we'll be talking about when we're old people on the porch, which isn't really very long for most of us, right? But it's something that we'll be talking about for years. The triumph of the gospel, what God is doing in the lives of people. I, I, I left Charles' house the other day, and we had some sweet times of fellowship. And, and I left his house the other day after arranging this baptism. And I said, I got to call my dad. He's 85, been in the ministry, you know, all his life, all my life. I said, hey, dad, I got to tell you something. I told him a story. He goes, you can't make that stuff up, can you? I'm, no, no, you can't. Stand with me today. We're going to go into overtime. And I'll tell you why, because we want to sing.